0: The reading this morning is taken from Judges chapter 6, starting at verse 1.
1: The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted the, their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkey. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said,
0: This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me.
1: The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Aborazrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said,
0: The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family.
1: The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon replied,
0: If now I have found favour in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back. And bring my offering and set it before you.
1: And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went inside, prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of flour he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he put them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock and pour out the broth." And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed,
0: Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face.
1: But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it stands in Ophrah of the Abba's That same night, the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood of Asherah pole that he cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning, when the people of the town got up, there was Baal's altar, demolished, with the Asherah pole beside it cut down, and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other,
0: Who did this?
1: When they carefully investigated, they were told,
0: Gideon's son of Joash did it.
1: The people of the town demanded of Joash,
0: Bring out your son. He must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it.
1: But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him,
0: are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by mourning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar.
1: So because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him the name Jerob Baal that day, saying,
0: Let Baal contend with him.
1: Now, All the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Aborazrites to follow him. He sent messages throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet them. Gideon said to God,
0: If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said.
1: And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God,
0: Do not be angry with me. Let me make one, just more one request. Allow me one more test with the fleece, but this time make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew.
1: That night God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew.
0: We're now going to welcome Matt up to the stage who's going to be teaching this morning. I'm just going to pray for you, Matt, before you speak. Lord, thanks so much for Matt. I thank you that we're all here this morning and um, that we hopefully had a good night's sleep. I pray that you give us open ears to hear your word and to listen and to grow in our own faith. Amen. Amen.
2: Thanks, guys. And good morning, everyone. It is great to be with you this morning. And of course, you know, huge congratulations because you have survived the very first night of Forum, and that is a big deal, that is a big deal, because the morning after the first night is a morning of stories, isn't it? There's the story of those who didn't actually get to bed at all, you know who you are, you've got the story of those who snored through the night, you've got the story of those who speak in their sleep and you've got the story of exactly what they said. And that is a story, isn't it? Now, I say all that because I love stories, stories in my blood. I studied uh, English literature and theatre. I used to teach English and media at secondary school. I love stories. I can't get enough of them. But the one story genre that is always worth cracking open popcorn for is the story of the underdog. Now, I think we love stories of the underdog, don't we? And you know the one, it's, it's where you normally will have a gang of misfits or outcasts or oddballs uh, and they go head to head against some elite enemy or opposition team who are always incredibly mean and then you get the final scene, don't you? It's the, um, the final showdown in the courtroom, the final big championship game, the final big conflict, whatever it is, and against all odds, all odds, they win. We love a good underdog story, don't we? Until, of course, it's us. Now, over the the next three mornings, we're going to be going as a deep dive into one of the Bible's most famous underdog stories. And and what we're going to see in the story of Gideon, it's not just going to be like a a feel-good pep talk just before term begins. Actually, the truths that we're going to examine, well, they're going to prepare us to face our fears. They're going to prepare us to be unfazed by lack of resources. They're going to prepare us to unlock resilience in the face of criticism. So I want to invite you into the story of Gideon. Well, come with me to our first point this morning, and it's this, point one, fear does not disqualify you. Fear does not disqualify you. Now, our passage opens in an environment of fear. Do you see that? The Israelites were in the promised land of their own, and this was a promise that went all the way back to Abraham. And since then, God had brought up a leader called Moses, and Moses had led the people out of slavery in Egypt and into this land. But the Israelites had failed to follow God's instructions. They failed to remove the Canaanites from the land and they tolerated their idol worship. And many years after that moment, well, many of the Israelites actually came to worship those very same pagan gods and their neighbours have now become their abusers. And the book of Judges, is a book that describes cycles, cycles going downwards, cycles that show tragedy of what happens when you turn your back on the way God has asked you to live. Uh, The cycles pretty much follow the same pattern all the way through the book. You have the Israelites worship false gods. They're then oppressed by their enemies. The Israelites then cry out to God for help. And then God sends a rescuer called a judge. That's really just a tribal leader. And this judge brings rest for God's people. That is, until the final part of the cycle, the judge eventually dies. And the cycle goes round again. And so by Judges chapter 6, which is our passage today, we're five cycles in and we're back in the very dark part of the cycle. The Israelites were worshipping the pagan gods, Baal and Asherah, and the Midianites, which were kind of like a nomadic group of land pirates or bandits, as you might call them, had roamed the land, and they were pillaging and stealing everything. Now, if you were an Israelite, and you were reading this description in Judges chapter 6, it would have been absolutely heartbreaking. It would have been as heartbreaking as finding a winning lottery ticket before breakfast and having lost it by lunch. Because the writer, at the very beginning of chapter 6, he picks up on the great promises to the Israelites to God that were given from God to Abraham, in Genesis 12 onwards, and God promised Abraham, you're going to be a great people. You're going to be a multitude. You're going to be a people of huge blessing. You're going to have a land of your own. You're going to have food, farms, booming economy. You're going to have community, and you would be a people broad and numerous and multiplying. There's one line that says, you will be like sand on the seashore. In other words, you're going to be countless. That's how big your people are going to be. That was God's promise to the Israelites through Abraham. But do you see the cruel twist at the very beginning of our chapter? Many of the Israelites, look with me at verse 2, they're hiding in caves. They're hiding in mountains. And we're told that it was the Midianites that were so numerous, so vast, that it was their camels that couldn't even be counted, verse 6. And so we meet Gideon. There he is in verse 11. And it's a little bit like, I think, you know, we've sat on our laptop whilst we've been watching YouTube and suddenly it's clicked on a video sketch show. Because it kind of, the introduction of Gideon is kind of like a comedy. Do you see that? The apparent hero of our story, we don't find him in the gym. We don't find him, um, you know, completing an exam. He's not a genius. We don't find him doing a training montage. And we love a training montage, don't we, Forum? We find him hiding in a wine press. Now, a, a wine press. He's kind of threshing the, the the wheat in this wine press, which would have been a sunken chamber in the ground where you couldn't be seen. It, it's the equivalent of um, it's the equivalent of eating your lunch in the toilet cubicles because you don't want the bullies to get it. it it's the equivalent of um, eating an entire bucket of KFC in a wardrobe just so you don't have to share it. You ever done that? Well, the channel flicks again, do you see? And it turns out, well, it's like we have flicked onto a supernatural thriller. An angel appears, which is always an exciting morning, isn't it? And terrified Gideon's paranoia levels go through the roof. He's worried that the angel will leave him, so he begs the angel to stay. Uh, And then he's worried that actually seeing the angel means he's seen the very glory of God and he's going to die And so I think verse 22, it should read, and then Gideon hyperventilated into a brown paper bag. It doesn't say that, but it feels like it should, shouldn't it? Look, Gideon is hardly the hero that you guys were hoping would encourage you as you face perhaps an aggressive SU or as you face, I don't know, a rampaging rugby team that tears down all your posters, or as you face protests this year from other societies at the university that see you as the Christian Union as the greatest threat to everything they hold dear. But here's the thing, before you, before you write off Gideon, doesn't something feel a little bit familiar About this introduction. You see, if you were an ancient Israelite reading Judges chapter 6, the very words that you have in your hand this morning, if you were reading this for the first time as an Israelite, you would have a knowing smile on your lips. And for you, it would be a game changer. Why? Because everything that we've read so far about Gideon in chapter 6, it is like a total echo of Moses and his first encounter with God. You see, Moses, the great Israelite leader, when he'd been running away from the Egyptians, that was Israel's great enemy, he encounters God in a fire. Do you remember? In a burning bush on a mountain. And it's in that encounter that God calls Moses out of what he's doing into doing something courageous, into being an incredibly brave witness for Yahweh. And so here's Gideon in our passage, hiding from the Midianites, that's Israel's kind of current enemy, and he encounters God in a burning rock who calls him to step out in faith in order to cut down idols. You see, there was Moses, wasn't there, who said to God, look, not me, I can't go, I can't speak. And there's Gideon in our passage who says, look, I can't go, I'm too weak. He says that in verse 15. So why the parallels? Why is the writer of Judges wanting to parallel Moses and Gideon well it's this reason because this is the normal pattern for the people that God calls to step into leadership positions this is the normal pattern god takes frightened and scared and inexperienced and unprepared people and and he reminds them that there is a world of difference between how they see themselves and how God sees them. Look with me at verse 12. I love verse 12. This is what God says to the man hiding in a wine press. God sees the future of this man's life and he declares to this very frightened individual the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valour. Would you not love to be addressed by the angel of the Lord like that? Wouldn't you love that? Wouldn't you love to be addressed by the angel of the Lord this summer with the words, The Lord is with you, O mighty secretary of meticulous organisation. <laughs> or the Lord is with you, O mighty impact leader of consistent preparation. But this is it. Your suitability for your role is not dependent upon your track record or your level of confidence. Do you hear me? God has selected you for this role that you have in your university in this precise year because he sees exactly what's coming And he sees what you will be. You see, your feelings, your feelings of being weak and out of your depth isn't a liability. It provides the one thing that Gideon will learn over these three chapters and the one thing that you must learn, and that is greater dependence upon God. Isn't it? Isn't it a relief to know that the most exciting aspect of your CU leadership this year is not who you are today, but who you will become by the end of it? Your feelings of weakness are not an obstacle to being a leader that God has called you to be, they are the very tools. That God will use to make it happen. Just hold the weight of that a little bit. Well, come with me to our second point. Fear is the doorway to spectacular worship. Fear is the doorway to spectacular worship. Now. One of the things that I I like about the book of Judges is that it has more high-octane, ridiculous plot twists than your average Fast and Furious movie. Now, look with me at verses 25 to 32. This is a heist movie. Do you see that? This is an absolute madcap plan with impossible odds of success that Gideon is sent on. And the mission is like some kind of, I don't know, farming black ops. Do You see that? It's to go, to sneak into the dead of night, two bulls, sneak two bulls into the very town center at the dead of night and have yourself one almighty barbecue that would be such a massive feast. It would make um, an episode of man versus food look like a happy meal. And you know, this sacrifice here is most likely to be an offering that celebrates relationship. It's where you burn the bulls, but you get to feast on them as well. It was a unique sacrifice where you get to eat the food off the altar as if you were feasting at the very table of the Lord. And you were doing it not because you had to, but because you wanted to. It was a sacrifice. It was a barbecue of delight and relationship and intimacy and privilege with the Lord. We hear the word sacrifice, but what we're really talking about is Gideon is called to go to the very center of the town and worship. And remarkably, look with me at verse 27. It tells us that they did it. First blood to the underdog. Well, what's our takeaway for future leaders uh, from these verses? Does God want me to have a midnight barbecue outside the SU? Is that the application? Wouldn't that be great? Or how about a chicken wing buffet outside the office of the pro-vice chancellor? Wouldn't that be a fun application to go home from forum? No. I know. I but God is inviting you to spectacular worship right in the middle of your campus. What do I mean? Look, we meet Gideon at the very beginning of chapter six and he's discouraged and he's frightened. And I think there can be no doubt that Gideon is spiritually dry. Look with me at verse 13. It tells us that he feels that God has abandoned his people. He says, you were with us, Lord, if you were with us, that things would have been different, but you're not, you've abandoned us and that's why everything's gone wrong. And so God invites this man to do the bravest and most crazy thing that he has ever done in his life. And as a result, he experiences the very intimacy of worship with God. A moment of worship having this altar right in the middle of the town that would have ordinarily been only available to those who were at the tabernacle. It would have been a privilege of feasting with God that would have been the realm of the Levitical priests, not some sort of farmer's lad from the tiny tribe here. But more than that, more than that, God gives Gideon the biggest sign yet that the Lord is with him. You see, at the moment that Gideon should have been murdered in the morning by an angry mob who have found their altars of their false gods destroyed, and they know it's Gideon. At the moment they should have absolutely pulled him to pieces, Gideon's saved. Do you see that? He's given a label. He's given a name, Jerubal. It's a name of protection that means let Baal deal with him. In other words. Nobody touch him. He's in God's hands. Let God deal with him. Could there be a bigger sign for Gideon that God is with him? And all of this, all of this came about because he listened, he trusted, he obeyed. Not because he wasn't afraid. Here's the application. Some of your sweetest moments, some of your most memorable encounters with the Lord this year will happen to you in some of your bravest moments when you choose to lead your CU out into public proclamation of the gospel, even though inside you are absolutely terrified. Even though you go into it feeling painfully, painfully weak. Well, let me give you an example. It, it's going to be the sense of God's presence when you run a, I don't know, a, a lunch bar in a marquee at the very center of campus where everyone can see. Or, or perhaps it'll be in the thrill and exhilaration of getting to pray with someone when you happen to just be out on the street flying for an event or it will even be singing praises to God in a lecture theatre or seminar room where you know the next day you're going to be in there with a lecturer that hates Christianity. Your fear, your trepidation will make the joy of your worship even sweeter. This is the question of the week. I think this is the question of the week. Put it in your notes or get it um, done as a tattoo. I don't really mind. It's this. What could you and your team be called to courageously do this year? What could you or your team be called to courageously do this year? That's the conversation, isn't it, of this week? What a question it is. Well, come with me to our third and final point. Look to the sign. If there's one thing you probably know about Gideon, it's probably verses 36 to 40. Look at me, 36 to 40. It's where he tests that God is truly going to grant him success by putting out a fleece. Now, look, let me kind of give a, a caveat here, early warning. Can I say, if you see any fleeces outside of tents this week or any unauthorized sheep shearing by CU leaders trying to figure out whether they should call their events week this year human or um, story or whatever it is, can I categorically say you have totally missed the point. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 16 is very clear. It says, you must not test the Lord your God. Why? Because it shows a total lack of trust in the means that the Lord has already provided to communicate to you. Which is why Gideon in verse 39, look at me at verse 39, he begins his request to test God by saying, please, please don't be angry with me. Now, look, let's get a really clear picture of what's happening here. At the very beginning of the chapter, the angel of the Lord has appeared to Gideon in person. Okay, that's number one. Number two, he's had this remarkable barbecue night of worship with the Lord. He's been given a label of total protection, and yet Gideon is so frightened, he's still so insecure within himself, he's still so afraid that he now asks God, not for one test, but two And he's literally asking the God of all creation to bend his rules just for him. And what does God say? He says, okay. Do you see that? He says, okay. Twice Gideon asks God for a sign that he is with him and twice God gently replies, I've got this. I've got this. I-, I want you to see this. God loves frightened Gideon so much that he says, yes. Now, look, you might be thinking, Do you know, I'd love to have a sign too. Aren't I also a leader like Gideon being called by God to step outside of my comfort zone and be courageous for the Lord? Why shouldn't I also have a sign? Why shouldn't we be able to go to any university in, I don't know, say the month of February and see, I don't know, a dark blue fleece billowing in the dawn and go, you know, there's Oiku. There's OEQ deciding whether or not to do a lunch bar on sexuality or not. Or or see a fleece billowing in the wind and go, you know, that's Cardiff CU, isn't it? They're deciding whether or not to run an evening event on Christianity and colonialism. Let's see what happens. Why shouldn't we be able to do that? And if you're sitting there now and you're thinking, look, I want... I want a sign to know whether we should go really big for the gospel this year or should we just keep it low-key and safe? That's Gideon's dilemma, isn't it? That's Gideon's dilemma. If you're thinking that, then you need to know that God has given you the one and only sign you'll ever need to answer that question this year. He's given you the cross. You see, the reason that we can accept the invitation to courageously witness and worship God at the heart of our hostile environments, no matter what happens, is we know that because of the cross, God will always be with us from now to eternity. It's because we know that God the Father sent his Son willingly into the heart of the city, he did it in the daylight on that Palm Sunday when everyone could see, not in the secret of night. And his son brought a sacrifice, not a bull, but himself. And whereas Gideon chopped down a wooden pole, Jesus chose to be nailed to one. See that we, and I'm talking to myself here, whose fears and anxieties have led us to worship again, and again and again at the idols of this world, we whose fears have constantly made us doubt that God is good and made us withdraw and withhold and withhold. For us, the cross is the sign so that we would know that when we hear God's call to worship him, to delight in him, to serve him, it's the sign that we should go. For us, the cross is the sign for those of us who have vowed in our prayers that we will go anywhere for you, Lord. We will serve you in any way so long as you go with us. The cross is the sign that we should stand up and go. Let me finish by telling you this story. Um, I was at university in Lancaster some years ago and um, I, was, I was part of the CU and a friend of mine in the CU um, said to me and a couple of other group of friends, they said, look, you know, we should do something really big to show the city of Lancaster that we really love Jesus. We should do something to show the city of Lancaster that Jesus means more to us than anything else. And I'm like, yeah, good, fine, great. What, what, what are you thinking? And she's like, oh, do you know what we should do that would make a massive splash to show that we really worship the Lord Jesus with all our hearts? We should, we should do a flag dance right in the middle of Lancaster. And I'm like, come again? She's like, yeah, if we did that right in the middle of Lancaster, then everyone would see how much we delight and love Jesus, and they'll be drawn to us, and they'll ask questions. And I'm like, whoa, 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 when are you thinking of doing this? She said, oh, we should do this on Saturday afternoon, because it's when it's at its busiest. Have you ever been in those moments when someone kind of invites you to do something, and you don't want to do it, and you're trying to desperately think of an excuse in the moment, anything, surely there must be something I've got to go to or be at, you know. I failed and I I couldn't think of anything. I was like, uh, uh, yeah, I guess so. It became known in my mind as Flag Dancing Saturday. It was there in the diary and I was dreading it. Oh, I was dreading it. I was thinking to myself, this is going to be an absolute disaster. I'm going to be a total embarrassment. I'm going to be utterly shamed at the university. This is going to be awful. What's even the point of kind of showing this love for Jesus? What good could possibly come from it? Right in the middle, it's just going to be utterly shame and embarrassment. I got to the night before, and my heart is beating because... I cannot do it. I cannot be there. The cost is too great. And I've got a text ready to go that basically says, I, I can't make it. I can't do it. It's ready to go to my friend. I'm gonna pull out. I'm gonna no. Nah. And before I send it, I'm I'm praying to the Lord and I'm saying to the Lord, I I can't do it. You can't ask me to do this. It, it's kind of social suicide. I just remember in that moment being reminded that actually, my Jesus, whenever I have totally messed up, the cross has always meant to me that he would never turn me away. And that even though I've messed up, the cross has always meant that he would never be ashamed of me. And I've done things where I've been so doubtful that I should even walk into church on a Sunday, but because I, I know the gospel, I know that I can, and because I believe the gospel, I've been. And I'm reflecting on the fact that my Jesus on the cross humiliated himself so that I would know in my worst times of embarrassment, my worst times of rejecting him, that he would never let me go or never push me away. And you know what? I never sent that text. And that Saturday afternoon, I danced my heart out in the middle of Lancaster city centre with a flag the size of a small car. It was the biggest, most publicly awkward act of affection for Jesus I've ever done in my life. And I'll tell you this, I loved every moment of it. It was awesome. And I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that I did it. Your feelings of weakness are not the obstacle To being the leader that God has called you to be. They are the tools that God will use to make it happen. Question of the week, forum. What courageous acts of witness or worship is God calling you to this year? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we make no pretense about it. We are afraid. We feel daunted. And yet we know the cross stands as a signpost in history that you will never let us go. You will never push us away. And that means that we can go out into the hardest places, the most hostile environments, and praise the Lord and proclaim his name and know that it's okay. Heavenly Father, I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you will strengthen such a love and passion at the very core of our being that we would dare to ask where would you send us and what would you have us do, that we would dare to take the safety catch-off this year and serve you in outrageous, ridiculous, extraordinary
1: In spectacular ways. Amen.